Well, let's look at God's Word together. And guess what? I'm still in the book of Acts. I don't care where you are, but we're going to stick in the book of Acts until we get, we wring every bit out of it. Do you ever like squeeze lemons, or maybe oranges or something for the juice? I, I like squeeze as hard as I can because I want to get every drop of that delicious juice out of there so I can use it for whatever I want to use it for. So this is the book of Acts for me. I am just squeezing this thing. Like, God, give us more. Help us to understand it more deeply. Help it not to be a surface thing. Help it to go deep into our hearts so that we are changed by this study of God's Word. So this morning, the title of the sermon is, What Does Love Look Like? Now, you'll see why I, I, I came up with that title. It could be subtitled, We Should Not Cause Difficulties for Those Who Are Turning to God. But that was too long of a title, so I said, what does love look like? And that's our, our, our sermon this morning. So let's take a moment and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide and teach each one of us. Father God, we thank you for your spirit. You've given us, each one of us as we've come to Christ, you've given us the spirit to guide us and teach us. Scripture says he'll remind us of what you have said. And so we want to be reminded this morning of every word that you spoke. Those are words of life to us. They bring light into our darkness. They help us to, to understand how to navigate life. We need you as our, as our GPS, as the one who guides us and, and, and brings us through. So thank you for that gift. Guide us now by your spirit as we look into your word. Amen. So since the book of Acts is one of the longest of the New Testament books, um, and since chapter 15 is right in the middle of the book of Acts, and we've had a few weeks where we looked at it and didn't look at it and whatever, um, I want to just do a little reminder of us, uh, for us this morning, about the, the overall theme so that we don't lose our way along the journey. Sometimes you need to be reminded, where are we going? Where have we been? Where are we right now? So, so just briefly, we can summarize Acts this way. Jesus gave his followers a promise. He did that in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. We looked at that together. He then also gave us a purpose. That's actually in verse 8 of chapter 1. And then finally, God poured out his spirit to give us the power to carry out that purpose, to receive all that that promise is and then to carry it out. And that's where we're at here in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit himself is guiding the church and guiding the believers through life and helping them to be what Jesus said they would be, his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the whole ends of the earth. So he is guiding them and giving them the power to persevere because it hasn't been easy. We've already seen some of the resistance to the gospel. He gives them the power to persevere and to keep going with that message because it is the, it is the message of God for the whole world. So we're the church, and each of us has been given that same promise, that same purpose, and that same power. And God's plan is to reach the world through us as we minister his love and his grace and his power in this world. 
And we do have to persevere in that. Sometimes we feel like giving up. Sometimes we're, we're overwhelmed with the problems of life. And so we need to draw from the Spirit the strength that we need so that those persecutions and those difficulties don't stop us from sharing the good news. The church is here to share the good news with the world, period. And that's what we're, we're doing. That's what we're trying to do and encourage each other as we do that. Because you know what? When we're in heaven, we're going to worship 24-7. So we're not just here to sing songs on the earth today. That's part of how we are strengthened. It's part of how we're encouraged. But our job isn't just to sing songs to the earth. Our job is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, his grace and forgiveness and love to the world. It isn't just to hold classes and to learn more things about the Bible. That's part of it, but that's not the ultimate purpose. The purpose is that the whole world would know Jesus they would hear the message of Jesus and have a chance to respond. Amen? So we are the carriers of that. Picture yourself as like a, a bucket or, or, or something that you could carry water in. You, you receive from God, you're filled up with it, and then you carry it everywhere you go. And some of it splashes out and spills out, and you're able to offer it to other people. And then you got to keep going back to God to get filled up again so that you can give the grace and the love and the goodness of God to those in your life. So two, two weeks ago, the message that I preached from this same chapter in, in chapter 15, we saw how the Holy Spirit solved a very important problem for the early church and one that we continually need the Spirit's help to solve. It was one that we have to be reminded of so that we can be faithful in carrying the pure gospel to others because the gospel can be tainted Something can be added to it. Something can make it not quite the gospel anymore. And that's what was happening in the beginning there of the, 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 the chapter that we read, chapter 15. So it's important that we understand where we came to that, that week, two weeks ago, just to be reminded, that our God is a generous God, and he gives salvation as a free gift to anyone who will believe in his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the whole law. In order to be saved, you come to him by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith alone, not by doing other things, other customs, other traditions of men, other religious activities, but by trusting in Jesus. That's what makes you a Christian. So salvation doesn't come through you working your way to God, being good enough, by earning his love or even by keeping his whole law, always doing everything right, because the truth is you can't. No one can. The only one who ever did was Jesus. So the church in the book of Acts solidly decided here in this chapter, they decided that the gospel truth is not by works. In fact, verse, 15, verse 11 of chapter 15, if you want to turn to it in your pew Bible, it's page 982. Let's use these Bibles. Chapter, chapter 15, verse 11, page 982, says this. On the contrary, in other words, you don't have to work your way through the Jewish law to become a Christian. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what anyone else tells you, 
You need to know that. On the contrary, whatever they're saying, whatever they say you have to do in order to be saved, first, it is based on your faith in Jesus Christ, believing in the Son of God. So Jews and Gentiles, in other words, the Jews and everyone else on the earth, because that's who the Gentiles are. You have just two distinctions in the, in the Bible, the Jews and everybody else. And we, most of us, are the everybody else. We don't work our way to God. We don't have to go through uh, all the law and keeping all the law. We go to God by faith in Jesus Christ. If we're going to share the gospel with the world, we have to be sharing that gospel not a man-made version of that gospel. An unadulterated, they call it, an unadulterated, pure gospel. You come to Christ through faith in him. That's it. Then he begins the process of transforming you, changing you, making you into that unique and beautiful person that he knows you already are. But he wants to work that way out, his way out, of you and through you through sanctification. So in Acts chapter 15, we see that it is so important to correct this tragic mistake because this is what has, was being taught, this mistake that, no, no, first you have to keep the law, then you can come to faith in Christ. It was so important that they correct this that they actually wrote it down and then they sent Barnabas and Paul and Judas and Silas, trusted men in the community, throughout the churches, with that letter, which was written from Jerusalem, to correct this false teaching. Because it was spreading among all the new believers, and there was confusion, and there was going to be division because of it. And praise God for leading the church by his Holy Spirit to do that. Because now we have it written as well for us. We have that letter as Luke put this book together. He, he, he found and, and was able to quote from that letter for us. Praise God that he's preserved his truth in his word for us so that we can be saved, so that we don't have to jump through hoops, that we don't have to think we have to work our way to God, that we don't have to be you know, weighing our lives on these scales of, was I good enough? Was I good enough? I don't know if I'm good enough. You know, will I ever make it to heaven? I don't know. We can know if we put our faith in Jesus alone. That's the requirement for salvation in Jesus Christ. And it is good that he gave us the Holy Spirit because this is the Holy Spirit's work that we're seeing at work. In fact, Jesus told us, he promised in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. That's what it says in John 16, 13. So we need to understand that that's the role of the Spirit, to guide us into the truth. Often we get confused by the role of the Spirit in our lives. Yes, he's many things. He is our comforter. He helps us in a time of need. But he's also our guide to truth. And I hope that you'll see that in the passage as we continue in chapter 15 this morning. Because what I want you to see is that the Holy Spirit was very active teaching them some truth, something that was very helpful for them. He guided them. He taught them. It's written down in chapter 15 for us. So like I said, grab your new Bible here. Turn to page 982. Thank God for his word. One of the things that um, 
I've seen practiced recently in some churches that are going through revivals. They say, and this is God's word. And the people say, and we believe it. So I'd like to practice that. I'm going to say, and this is God's word. And we believe it. That's right. All right. Good, good affirmation. We thank God for his word. So let's examine this message where he uses his spirit to guide the church towards some truth that they needed. So read with me from uh, chapter, 23, um, chapter 15, verse 23. Let's start there. This is the letter that they wrote, and now we're carrying around and reading to the different congregations that were upset about all these other things that the Judaizers had been inserting into the gospel. So here's what they wrote, starting in verse 23. From the apostles and the elders, your brothers... To the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some, without our authorization, went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and to send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas as well, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. And here's, here's where the report starts. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, before we read these requirements, we've got to see those words in capital letters highlighted for us. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision. And ours. Love that. Love that. What confidence that must have brought to them. What joy that must have brought to them. To know that they clearly understood what God's Spirit wanted them to do. And then they just agreed with it. They, they put their, their selves in line with it. It was the Holy Spirit's decision, and then we put ourselves in line with it, and then it was ours as well. Not to place further burdens on you beyond that. Now, inside my brain is a strange place. But inside my brain, I, I pause a lot. I pause a lot sometimes when I speak, but I pause a lot when I'm thinking and meditating on God's Word because, because God's Word reveals more of God's Word and God's character and God's heart or whatever. So at this juncture, I pause, and I want us to pause. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, not ours, not to place further burdens on you. God doesn't want us to be burdened by our relationship with Him. Some of you are carrying around your Christianity like it's a, a hardship, like it's a burden. So hard to be a Christian, so difficult to walk in God's love. That's not what God wants. That's not what the Spirit wants. He wants us to walk in joy and freedom and strength. So before we read on, we just pause there and, and we, we want to say, God, work in us. Help us to understand what your decisions are for us. So that they wouldn't, my life wouldn't be a burden. But I was reminded when pausing at that place in the, in the, 
in, this, in the scripture here of Jesus' words. It's called the new commandment that Jesus instituted. In John 13, the gospel of John 13, verse 34 and 35. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. We did the fill in the blank with it. So let's do it together. I think I still have the fill in the blank slides from last time. I give you a new commandment. Do you remember what it was? Love one another. Right. Very good. And then the next, the next slide. I give you a new command. Love one another. Right. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Right. This is a new commandment that Jesus gave. What he talked about was, you know, people coming and saying, you know, what's the greatest commandment or how do I keep all these commandments? And he said, you know, let's just boil it all down. If we boil it all down and you love one another, you'll be keeping the whole law. So I want you to see how these requirements, these few requirements that the early church decided the Holy Spirit had taught them and they wanted to line up with. I want you to see how these are a direct, practical, even culturally sensitive act of obedience to the commandment of love one another. So I don't want you to focus on the commandments themselves. We're going to look at them, the requirements. They're not even called commandments. They're called requirements. And we're going to look at them, but I don't want you to see them outside of the frame of this is a way to show love to one another. This is a way to keep that great commandment, the new commandment to love one another. And this is tricky because in some ways, some of it may look very differently for us today, but in other ways, it might look exactly the same for us today. And that's a little bit tricky. We need some maturity and some, some understanding to get there. I believe it says we place only these few requirements on you. And I believe it says that because in order to grow in your relationship with the Lord and in your relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, in the family of God, the church, we must love one another first by showing love to those who are different than us, those with different backgrounds, those with different cultures, those with different experiences. We must grow to know one another well enough to understand how to show love. As Tanya was saying, there's kind of like these different love languages. In some cultures, love is expressed one way. In some families, love is expressed another. In some relationships, love is expressed in another way. And they're all love, but how do we know which way to love? So if Jesus just says, here's the new commandment, love one another, it's open for interpretation, right? We need the Spirit to teach us what does that look like every day? Because love one another is a very broad, you know, you could think, well, I, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm loving others. I send Valentine's cards every day, all throughout the year. That's how I love one another, right? So you could, you could try to find a way to, to apply it, but you need the Holy Spirit's help to know how to apply it to those individuals in your circle, those individuals in your group, those individuals in your family. You need the Holy Spirit to guide you and show you. And that's exactly what he did here. It was decided by the Holy Spirit and then the believers that to show the world God's unity and God's love and to live together in that unity and love as a loving community, we cannot treat one another as though we don't matter. 
as though my way is the right, the right way and your way is the wrong way. We have to learn how to treat one another because we cannot be a community that says you don't matter. It doesn't matter what you think. It only matters what I think. Sounds like Facebook, right? What I think, my opinion, is the most important. I'm the important one. You're not. That sounds like the world. It's all about me first. I don't care about you. That's actually the spirit of the Antichrist. Christ came because God loved us so much, right? So if we start to not love each other so much, we are acting like the Antichrist, the opposite of Christ. And so his community is to be a loving community. So in God's family, out of love, what's happening here is they're being asked to abstain from certain things that they actually need to abstain from in order to be a loving community. So let's read verse 29. So here's what the Holy Spirit's decision was. We're not going to burden you with, with you beyond these requirements. Number one, that you abstain from food that's offered to idols. That you abstain from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And they end their letter with, you will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. Simple. To the point, clear, except there's a word there that none of us like. It's the word abstain. Some people don't even know what abstain means. In today's world, you grab all the gusto you can get. What, the, what, what do you need abstain for? But in God's world, in God's kingdom, in God's community that he's developing on earth, we are to abstain, which means to restrain oneself from doing or enjoying something. (gasps) But I thought we were in America. Isn't there something about happiness in our constitution? Right? The pursuit of happiness. Not the pursuit of unity, not the pursuit of oneness, not the pursuit of godliness, just the pursuit of happiness. So whatever makes me happy is what I'm going to do. And I don't care how it affects you. Welcome to America. That is the attitude of the world around us. I'm going to do what I want to do and what makes me happy, and I don't care how it affects you. Anti-Christ-like. Right? That is not what we need in the church. What we need in the church is to understand that abstaining from some things will actually prove your love for one another and that you love God enough to say no to something that might be pleasurable for you but is not good for you or your community or the reputation of your community. So, at this time in Acts 15, the early church needed these few requirements, and they involved a couple areas. One was these food choices, and the other was their sex choices, right? I know I said the S word in church, 
but it's right there in the scripture. Both of these involve appetite, right? Appetites, desires, wanting, right? That delicious chocolate cake that my wife is making for me. I can't wait. My appetite is ready, you know? So there's a desire, an appetite that needs to be abstained from. As an act of love, as an act of love, Acts 15.20 mentions the food choices, all right? So, so you don't get confused. They're very clear. Food offered to idols. In the culture at that time, and in many cultures still in the world today, people offer their food to an idol, and then they take all of it or some of it back, and they eat it. Because they don't, they don't waste it. They don't just leave it there. They eat it, right? This was the culture in which the church had now moved out into it, left Jerusalem, and was now in these other pagan cities. And when I say pagan, I don't mean that as a, as a put down. It's just that's what they were. They worshiped other gods and goddesses. And they had idols and, and statues and all kinds of rituals and, and, and spells and all kinds of witchcraft and all kinds of stuff was just, that's just part of that culture. And so food had been offered to those things, and then some of that food was brought back and eaten. And because some of the people who had come to saving faith in Christ had lived that lifestyle, had offered their food from the time they were born, had offered their food at those idols, and said those words at that, you know, those prayers to those gods or whatever. Some of the people who are now in the Christian community didn't want to eat that. They didn't feel safe going there anymore. They didn't feel like that was, that was something that was going to help them grow in their walk with God. It was going to actually pull them back into something that's from their past, something that they had left at the foot of the cross, something that they were free from. They no longer worshipped idols. So anything that even had, was at all related to idolatry, they didn't want to have a part of it because it got in the way their whole life. And now they were free from it. And they were able to walk in that freedom. And so when they came together as a group, Jews and Gentiles together, some of the people in that group may have been idol worshipers. And so if you had just stopped off at your local idol worshiping meat shop and picked up a roast beef to bring to the group, it didn't feel safe for them. It didn't feel godly to them. It didn't feel right to them. And they, they didn't want to fall back into idolatry. They wanted to stay where they were in the, in the body of Christ. And so for them, for their sake, because you love them, don't bring that to that meal. You're free to eat it because you weren't an idol worshiper. Or you don't have those same kind of hang-ups, we call them. Don't do that to them because it makes them worried about things, makes them anxious. And you'll say, like, well, they should get over that. Well, maybe they will get over that. But at this time in history, they were struggling because they came from idolatry and witchcraft into the body of Christ. And they no longer wanted anything to do with that. That's one group of people. The other group of people were those who were kosher. They had been Jews, good Jews, who had never broken any of the dietary rules. And so that's what you're seeing here, mentioned here. Anything that's strangled, anything that still has blood in it, 
If you go back into the Old Testament in Exodus 22:31 or Leviticus 17, verse 14, it had been said to them by God, blood is sacred and it is a symbol of life. And to eat undrained meat, meaning meat with still blood in it, is considered a serious offense to Jews. Even to this day, there is kosher food and non-kosher food, right? So again, we're trying to have a group together. We're trying to have a church together. We're trying to share life together. And there's some people there that have idolatry in their background. And there's some people that have Judaism in their background, law-keeping. And so you bring food that has blood still in it. And they're like, I can't do that. I can't. Ah, oh, you know, it's so difficult, and I don't feel comfortable, and I, I grew up, you know. The, so because we love them, we don't want to put them in that position. Do you see how this is the commandment of Jesus being worked out in practical ways, having to do with the potluck dinner or the time that they're spending together at each other's homes? Abstaining shows love. It shows that you Understand the weaknesses of your brothers and sisters. And you don't make fun of them for it. And you don't put it in their face. You love them for it. So that's what's taking place here with this food stuff. And now before I run out of time, let's talk about the sex. Let's talk about what he says here. He just adds it on. That's like, you know, three little words. Oh, and yeah, and, and if, you, if you love one another from, by abstaining from food that's offered to idols and f- food that still has blood in it, why don't you also love one another by abstaining from sexual immorality? Now, in America today, we don't even know what sexual immorality is anymore. So let's just take a moment and define it. Sexual immorality is any kind of sexual relationship outside of a covenant marriage. It's adultery, it's prostitution, it's homosexuality, it's incest, it's pornography, it's dot, dot, dot. Because there is no end to the imagination of what people will do in this category of their lives. Amen? Amen. Right? So, how is this an act of love for the community and for God? Well, if you love me, you won't try sleeping with my wife. Right? You got to hate me to do something like that to me. Right? So the community, the, the, the oneness in the body of Christ is kept together by honoring one another's relationships. And so this idea is all over the New Testament. Because the culture at the time, we think our culture is bad. We really do. We're like, it could never have been worse. Have you heard of Caligula? Have you heard of the Roman Empire and their sexual practices? I mean, in their culture, one thing that we still hold as like the worst of the worst, pedophilia, sex with children, in their culture, it was okay for certain citizens to have sex with children, right? That was acceptable in their culture, along with homosexuality and all of these other orgies and all this. You'll you'll see lists of them throughout the New Testament because Paul has to keep addressing it in every community they go to. Like, whoa, okay, wait. 
uh, as Christians, <laughs> we need to pull back, pull back the reins a little bit. We need to, to begin to build again what is God's intention for this beautiful gift of sexuality? Where does it belong? Because it's been let out and it's just like a wildfire. It's burning everything up. God is not a killjoy, but he puts guardrails around our lives to keep us from danger. Because doing whatever you want in your relationships on this level of sexuality is not a way to show love to yourself or to those around you, even though that's what our culture calls love. I mean, we are so crazy messed up, but we aren't as crazy and messed up as they were back then. We have God's word to guide us and to help us. Paul had to write in 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. Listen, in in, in 1 Corinthians 6.13, the body is not for sexual immorality, but it is for the Lord. Don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's body? Now that you are a member of Christ's body, your body is also part of Christ's body. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, a gift from God? And he says, you are not your own. I love that line. You are not your own because we think we are our own. I'm my own person. I'm going to do what I want. But you are not your own in Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, the blood of Jesus. So glorify God with your body. Paul had to get very specific, and we need to hear these very specific, somewhat uncomfortable words even now in the culture we live in. Because slowly but surely, we get affected by the culture, whether it's through the media, whether it's through the relationships at work, whether it's through the relationships at school. But little by little, it's like, you know, we're sinking in, 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 in the kettle, you know, the frog in the kettle, the heat's being turned up, but we're you know, kind of falling asleep. Well, if you read God's word, he's very specific. In Romans, again, Paul speaks, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. See, because your body has some desires that are not godly desires, some appetites that are not godly appetites. They're distorted by sin. They're, they're put in the wrong placement in your life. So before we finish today, let's remember something. What did the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit led the church to declare, number one, your salvation is through faith alone in Christ. Christ alone. God's unconditional love brings you into a new relationship with God and a new relationship with others. And the commandment in in Jesus' own words is to love one another. One of the ways to love one another is to not always please yourself, but to think about others first. That's where healthy relationships come from. That's where healthy marriages come from. That's where healthy families come from, is when you think of others first and you put their needs above your own. Part of loving one another in our relationship is honoring our differences, considering how how to welcome one another, how to make one another feel safe and whole in our relationship. 
making the other person feel valued and loved for who they are and what they're struggling with. This is God's plan for us, that we walk in wholeness. We will not do it perfectly. I know that. But with the Holy Spirit to guide us and to keep teaching us, we will continue to see God's love among ourselves and around us. And ultimately, the world will see our love too because it looks very different than the type that the world offers. The Apostle Paul, with the help of the Holy Spirit, our teacher, writes again and again to the believers in the early church throughout the New Testament helping them to work out the practical details of what it means to love one another in their families, in their marriages, in their parenting, and in their churches and with the world. We have to continually refresh our minds, refresh our hearts, refresh our spirits with God's word because we should always be asking this question, how can we show love, honor, and value to one another in our relationships. That is the commandment of Jesus. Love one another. When you devalue someone else and their problems and their issues, when you only think of yourself first, you're not obeying the first commandment to love one another. We want unity in the church. God, even more than us wanting it, God wants it. When Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, make them one. Make them one. And he knew how many different backgrounds and hang-ups and different families we came from and different love languages. He knew all that. Somehow he wants to make us one. And that doesn't mean we're uniform. It means in our diversity, we are able to love one another, value one another in such a way that the unity of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit shows up in the unity of the church. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 is our last verse for this morning. Again, listen to the words of the apostle by the Holy Spirit. He said, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. That's a lifetime of work, right? Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. This is what Christ did for us. If Christ only worried about Christ, he would have stayed in heaven. But he looked at our interests, our need for a Savior, and he came and laid down his life for us. That's what love looks like. Is it easy? Absolutely not. But it is what God has given us, his promise and his power and his purpose to fulfill. If we keep learning from the Holy Spirit how to use the gift of self-control to abstain from the things that harm us and harm others, this is an essential part of being a loving church, a loving community. By living with the guidance of the Spirit, the teaching of the Spirit, loving one another, showing the world that we are his disciples by loving one another, humbling ourselves, 
Because abstaining is really a way of humbling yourself. By saying, no, no, I really, I, I don't need to do that right now. I need to put that off. I need to wait. I need to understand a little bit more. I need to say no to myself. Accepting everyone who comes to faith in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, regardless of their backgrounds, regardless of their culture, regardless of their, 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 anything else in their personality, but accepting them and following the guidance of his Holy Spirit shows the world what God's love looks like. Amen? God, this is a hard message, but a good message for us. We need to hear these words. We need to understand how they apply to our life today. Some of them do, and some of them are around food and blood and things like that. Maybe don't. And we are so grateful that you've given us your Holy Spirit to teach us, to guide us. Thank you for your word. It's precious to us. Help us to realize it does apply to our lives, whether we like it or not. And show us how to walk in that love, in that love for you and that love for our community and those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.